yesterday I was in um, Clear Lake, California. And you just came back to do this? Mm -hmm. Wow. Then I pick up the tour tomorrow in uh, Ventura, California. So I'm flying out tomorrow and I get to Ventura, I rest for a day tomorrow, then I play in Ventura and then San Diego and I come back and we start somewhere else. I presume that this date just came, came in the middle somewhere? Like Yeah, well, when, it, when Jimmy V calls, I, I go, because he's like my brother, you know? And um, the, the Good Cause, Blues Foundation, and I get to see all of my friends, you know? I get to see John Sebastian. I ain't seen John in a while, you know, and network friends, because John's, I want, me and my wife, it's true, we were just talking about putting an auto harp on my next record, and we both, when we said it, it's like a week ago, we both said John. Wow. And, as soon as I walked in, they said, John wants to talk to you. <laughs> so it's, that's the kind of stuff, you know, that I really love. So it doesn't matter that you're on the left coast one minute and you have to come all the way back for this one gig, do a few no. songs, and then go fly back out there again. No, because cause I look at it like this. This will be a time that I remember all of my life. So what are the alternative? I have a day off at, in the, at a winery in the West Coast. So what? Right. I'd rather fly out. It's inconvenient. Believe me, but fly out and see my friends like John, Willie, um, uh, Jimmy, uh, meet the young kid, Marcus King, I never met him before, just walked in. You know, uh, that, that's what musicians live for. You know, and for me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan as well as a student at a game. So it's just, um, it's guys that would give their eye tooth, people that would give their eye tooth to be able to do, do this, you know? For sure. Now. I'm talking to Joe Louis Walker. Here we are in B.B. King's club in New York City. He's doing a, a benefit of the Blues Foundation this evening with a bunch of other people. He's been kind enough to sit with me. Um, tell me about that young kid who started playing guitar at the age of eight and, and what you saw in the guitar or what made you decide to pick up the guitar. Was it music first or was it guitar first? Well, my dad used to play the records when he came home from construction. And uh, I remember, the only thing I remember as a kid, six years old, seven, my dad coming home, sitting me on a table, and him playing records by guys where he came from, Howlin' Wolf, Jimmy Reed, and piano players. He loved piano players. Me, Lux, Lewis, Pete Johnson. And so I, I, I had that sound. And I think he intentionally did that because he couldn't be a musician. He had to work and work his way out of Mississippi to get to California with his family. So. He sort of vicariously lived his, what he wanted to do through me, you know, and then my mom was also in the music, both my grandmothers, gospel, gospel. So it really was my dad. So when I, when I started going to school was when you could check out instruments, you know, literally like a, like a library book. Right. As long as your parents said that you would be, take care of them, you could check them out for a week at a time. So the first, my first was the violin, my second was the accordion, because the guitar was always gone. It was always checked out. I could never get my hands on a guitar. Right. And so when I, later on, my mom sent me to a teacher. I didn't have a guitar, but she sent me to the teacher and, and I got to learn a few chords. And they were real smart. They put the electric guitar in the corner, but they never let me play it. She made sure that I learned my rudimentary stuff on an acoustic guitar, which I thank that lady till the day I die. Because if you can't sound good on an acoustic guitar, mm -hmm. they have the rest is electricity talking for you, you know? But if you can sound good on acoustic, if a song sounds good, then that's what, it, it's normal, it's, it's natural, it's, it's organic. Can I ask you what you had in mind? Like, when you picked up the guitar, what did you want to be? Who did you want to be? 
Well, at, at that time, my, my dad had me listening to T-Bone Walker and all these people, and I couldn't say that I knew who they were. I just knew the sound. You know, I just knew the sound, and, and it's funny because when I got to be 13 and 14, I'd, ans I'd answer ads in the Berkeley Barb, in the newspaper, the hippie papers, and they say, lead guitar player, need it. And I could play lead guitar because my dad had my ear tuned my dad had my ear tuned to that kind of lead guitar. Right. I, I, I didn't know that, I thought everybody could play like that. And then I was like, man, you, know, you can really play like that? And to me, it was just a way of playing, you know? What, do you, so, what do you think that is? I mean, how does that happen? I, I, I just, when everybody asks me, I just blame it on my father, you know, because he, I mean, he not only heard those people, he knew a lot of those guys, you know, the older guys in Mississippi. I mean, the Delta is not a big area. Everybody was chopping cotton and working in the fields. I mean, there was no tour buses. There was no, there was no um, ground zero. There was no B.B. King's club. There was B.B. King out in the field like everybody else. Right. You know, so my dad would go to the, to the fish fries and, you know, stuff like that. Weekends, and they'd gamble and drink all weekend and go to church on Sunday. Though my dad never went to church. And the church is a big thing. I want to get to that. But by the time you were 16, you were like a named guitar player in San Francisco. Is that mm -hmm. correct to say? Mm -hmm. And at, at this point, are you thinking, this is what I want to do in my life? Oh, I, I knew it was what I wanted to do when I was 12 years old. Because when I was 12, my, my parents split up for a while. And we moved from a really nice suburb to the projects, me and my mom and five kids. But the good thing about it, three, three, three blocks up, just so you know, they're just preparing for this evening's show, so it's a lot of ice. Three blocks up from where I lived, my cousins lived there. And all four of my cousins had a family band. And man, I'll never forget, the first time I went up there, I walked up, I said, go up there to come and buy them Bobby and Bell's house. And my cousin, Ted, Ted Weisinger, and they lived on the third floor of the projects. The top floor was the third. They were practicing, and I could hear the music and lining the steps, I'm, I'm not lying, lining the steps from there all the way to was all girls listening to my cousins play, and they were good looking guys. And that wasn't my main motivation, <laughs> but it <What>? sure helped. <laughs> I'm not lying, I'm just saying. So, so you knew you wanted to be a musician. Mm -hmm. At this point, are you thinking blues, or are you thinking it could be anything? Well, we, we, play, we had to play everything. We, we played you know, songs of the day that were hits. 64, we played Junior Walking All-Stars. We played Temptation songs. We played Beatles songs. We played a mostly bluesly, soul-orientated stuff, though. Most, mostly blue, dancing, the kids could get up and dance to, to Shotgun and, and stuff like that. And, um, but we played for older people. When we do that, we do stuff like uh, Big J McNeely, something on your mind, and, and things like that. And we did blues, too. And then you met Mike Bloomfield. Well, Mike was about four, about four or five years later. Okay. Uh, I met Michael uh, through a guy named Johnny Kramer, who was Barry Goldberg's cousin. And me and Johnny were like a, a duo, piano and guitar. And Johnny, you know, Johnny says, well, you know, it's weird because I'd, I'd seen Bloomfield play one day. And then I, I, was, I, went, I lived a block over from Hayden Ashbury. And I was crossing the street. I'd seen him play on a Thursday night. And it showed you how life's funny. This guy comes running across the street. He says, hey, brother, you know where a bookstore is? I says, man, you the captain from last night. And it's just nobody played like him. I mean, the guys in San Francisco was playing. Even I could play, you know, but 
wasn't playing like Michael. Because Michael had, you know, he was rubbing shoulders with Muddy Man. He knew. Yeah, yeah. And so we became friends, but he didn't know that I knew Johnny Kramer, his keyboard player, Barry Goldberg's cousin. And so fast forward to me and Johnny Kramer living together, and Johnny says, Joe, Michael's coming over. I said, well, I met Mike Bloomfield. He says, well, you know Michael plays with my cousin. He's going to come over and stay with us a while because Johnny was a trust fund baby. Very big money, more money than Michael's trust fund. And because he says, Michael quitting, he's quitting Butterfield and he's starting a band. And the band's going to stay at his house. So he wants to stay at our house because he don't want to be living with the band. <laughs> it's Michael. But anyway, also Michael and Susan were going, going through a real hard time, Michael's wife. And he, they eventually sort of split up, but they never really split up, you know. So Michael ended up staying with us, and we stayed on Reed Street. And then we stayed above the um, Mount Tamil. We stayed above Tamil, right above Tam, Tam High School. And it was a private road, and Johnny had all kind of money. And I left and went to Canada, 68, I was 18. And when I came back, a couple months later, Michael had bought the house on Carmelita Street, the famous house, and I moved in there. Myself, um, Johnny Kramer, uh, Ira Kamen, and Ira, Ira started a group called Mother Earth then. And just as the electric flag kicked Michael, pretty much Michael quit his own group, Ira Kamen quit his own group, Mother Earth. He should have stayed in that group because they became huge with, with Tracy Nelson. By that time, Ira was playing with Mike Bloomfield and Friends. And that was a rotating thing with uh, Brad Sexton, our friend on bass. Um, Rick Estrin was in Mike Bloom, Count Talent and Scouts. Wow. Um, uh, Bob Jones, the great Bob Jones. And you know Bob was the singer on Woke Up This Morning, You Were On My Mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bob started with folk music. So you had that convergence, and you had John Kahn, who went on from playing with Michael to playing with Jerry Garcia. You know, so it was all mixed up. It was, uh, but I had my own career. That's, that's one thing about it. So all those guys sort of played with me too, you know, but I had, I had a drummer named Richard Thomas who told me to tell you hi. He came with Getting Blues the other day. And um, so we were all mixed up. It was all a rotating thing, you know. And Michael's house was like that too. I'd wake up one morning and Carrie Bell would be sleeping in the bed next to me. I'd wake up another morning, Pee Wee Madison would be over there. Half of Muddy's band would be in the kitchen. Everybody stayed with Michael. He just had a big heart. You know? Tell me what he me. meant to you. Well, he basically was like an older brother. You know, he was like an older brother and he was brutal with his criticisms. You know, but that was good for me. You know, I mean, he'd come and hear me and he'd say, you know, boy, it's a good thing you can sing because you ain't playing shit on the guitar. And he was absolutely right. You know, I wasn't. You know, he was right. And so he, he intentionally sent me to Chicago in 1969 to play with Otis Rush. And I got a taste, taste of reality. Yeah, I don't know if this is gonna work. Nah. <laughs> it might be better if we just go back to where we were. Is that I okay? Think so. All right, we're just gonna cut it for one second. We have relocated to a quieter location, and now um, I bring back, bring up Michael Bloomfield because I think he meant a lot to you as a person, did he not? Well, yes. You know, um, they have a saying that you know when people enter your lives, sometimes it's. It's, it's for a reason. And, and Michael entered my life, and I, I really feel like for a reason at that particular time, because, you know, I was getting pretty known in the Bay Area, but there was something missing. 
You know, I, I really wasn't professional. Um, I didn't know what the next level looked like. Right. You know, and, and being around Michael to see what he went through and him being sort of the anti-guitar hero, you know, I mean, he, he wanted to be a musician. He didn't want it to be a star, you know. He, and he stayed true to his roots with the blues and and because and, he could have wrote his own ticket. The way he left home, if he'd stayed at home, he could have been a millionaire. He chose to do the blues. Um, to me, it was that dedication, you know. I mean, he was totally dedicated, you know, and not, just not blues, all American roots music, you know. And one thing I learned from Michael, the same thing I learned from B.B., was make your music inclusive. You know, he, he really, he could go in the studio with Bob Dylan, do Like a Rolling Stone. The next week he'd be in the studio with Ed A. Cleanhead Vincent doing Cherry Red. The next week he'd be somewhere with Woody Herman Orchestra. The next week he'd be somewhere with Sonny Land Slim. You know, on and on, Al Cooper, Super Session. And that's what, what I got a lot was like, you know, you can be dedicated to one thing, but you know, he liked the Beatles. I like, you know, and it's sort of like that, that generation was always searching, you know, and that's what I liked. I like, I mean, he'd be in a room with Jerry Garcia, and they'd be finger picking their butts off. You'd never know it. You would never know that Jerry Garcia won the finger picking competition up there in Kentucky right. with all the real finger pickers. Jerry could finger pick, Michael could, oh my God. It's like having two brains. It's, it's one of the hardest thing in the world that guy John Sebastian could do a bit of it. Mm -hmm. That, that finger-picking, it's, it's really, it's organic, you know, and, and it's really, you, you have to practice it. And I, I, I like that, you know, it, it was like, some people get to a certain level and they just stay pat. You know, I, I've gotten here, uh, but the generation I grew up, of mostly all the ones that were known, not known, were always pushing the envelope. You know, is it different? I mean, is it difficult? I know the times are completely different, but was it difficult to do that? Because sometimes you just get pigeonholed, right? Well, it, it, when when I personally on a personal level, when I came back to playing blues in 1985, I, I did nothing but gospel 75 to 85. Um, I'm a product of my generation, but also of of my area. I'm a product of growing up uh, with Sly Stone, with Bobby Weir, with Boz Skaggs, with Troyce Keys and the Blues Rockers, with Jimmy McCracklin, with Low Folson, my mentor, with uh, uh, Jerry Miller from Moby Gray, you know, all mixed up. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so when I came back to blues, uh, I was playing my little mishmash of stuff, and everybody said, man, you sound like Robert Cray. And I said, who is Robert Cray? I, I didn't know who he was. You know, and I, and I went to the San Francisco Blues Festival. I was playing with Katie Webster, '85, and I heard him, and I was like, he "Sounds like me." <laughs> you know, but and we joke about it, you know. But I, I, I'm, I think the difference, maybe a little bit of difference between me and Robert, is, is that, you know, I, I was sort of hands-on with learning from people like playing with Earl Hooker and and Jimmy McCracklin and 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 and, and, and people like that. And, and I think Robert, being where he was, the Pacific Northwest, there wasn't a lot of guys like that to play with, you know? And, and so he didn't, not that he couldn't have, but he, I'm, sure, I'm sure he could have. But, and also me being ensconced with people like Bloomfield, playing with Muscle White when I was 19, stuff like that. So I, I was, and, and being part hippie and all that, 
I was of that generation and of that sort of really both feats in that culture. And I'm I, I really proud to say that I learned my blues from the older blues guys, mm -hmm. you know, and, and from Michael and guys like that. Um, I didn't learn my blues. I learned some of it off the record listening, but I was fortunate. I'm with sort of like an in-betweener. I'm not as old as someone like Buddy Guy, and I'm not as young as someone like Stevie Ray Vaughan. Right. Stevie was like 10 years, 12 years younger than me, you know, and I love Stevie. We talk on the phone, just a wonderful person, you know, so I was sort of in-betweener. And it, it's weird because there's not a lot, the closest thing, the guy that I used to go here that would, you know, was maybe three or four years older than me was Taj. You know, I go to the Shrine Auditorium and hear him and, and you know, and that to me, him and Arthur Lee of Love, they were the guys that I, I could really relate to being sort of part hippie, part blues, part, you know, it was, yeah, yeah. It was a weird thing because there was no, before Taj, there wasn't a lot of guys that age that were doing that. That's before he did world music. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there were guys in Chicago, but it was a different thing, you know what I mean? And it, it was just, um, I could say Taj, Arthur Lee, who I considered a genius as a songwriter. You know, people just know him for Little Red Book and Seven and Seven Is, but he's way deeper. Jimmy Hendrix got a whole lot from Arthur, as well as his wardrobe Jimmy got. You know, I mean, he sort of channeled Arthur, and now they have the tape now with them doing Arthur Lee acts as bold as love. <laughs> yeah, him and Jimmy doing it in the, the law session. They're doing oh, Easy Rider. I think it's Easy Rider, and Jimmy's doing the, 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 the precursor to Axis. It's him and Arthur in the studio. And I like Johnny Arthur's guitar player. So those guys were inspirations to me. So I'm sort of a mutt, you know, really. Well, but you know. that's part of growing. That's how you grow in music, is it not? I mean, you I, have I to, think right? so. I think so. So I read somewhere that when, when Mike Bloomfield died, it changed your life or it had a major impact on you. Is that a correct well, statement? Well, you know, to be quite honest, I'd already changed because from 75 to 85, I played nothing but gospel and I hadn't been hanging around with the blues guys, secular, I just did nothing but gospel. Okay, can we talk about what led you to go to gospel? Like what happened well, well, that you gave up the blues? Now that's, that had more effect on me than when Michael died because about 74, 73, well, 72, I think Jimmy died. Uh, I believe 70 or 72. And then, you know, Janis Joplin and all those people, and, I, and the people I knew, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, of course, I, I wasn't on a level with them, but uh, I knew. And uh, I was living with Michael, and, and I just seen the excess, you know. I mean, some people didn't die, but they've never come back, you know. I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. And, and so, uh, just to be honest, I've seen my name on a bullet. You know, and it was like either you got to change or you're gonna be dead. You Do know. You remember that moment? Like, was there a specific moment when that happened? Yeah, because there was another friend of ours that didn't make it big or, or got known like me, Rick Esther, and we all come up together before Rick was in the Nightcats, and some of us started. We were on a trajectory, and another friend of us who used to take care of all of us and help us all, including Michael, name was Tommy Detoy, played guitar, and uh, Tommy died. Um, not long before Bloomfield, same location, same drugs, same dealer, same thing, but just earlier. And when that happened, I said, you know, I'm getting out of here. You know, I'm getting out. And me and my friend Bobby Drew, we just got on the plane. We picked a place to go and it was Vancouver. And I just stayed there. And but what, it was it necessary to leave, to be? Well, I, I don't, you know, in, in 
in recovery and stuff like that. You don't have to. It's it's one thing to be physically clean or physically, but the the other thing is, for years you've been hanging out in that culture, right? You know, and so that's all your friends. That's what you do after a gig. That's what you do before a gig. After the parties, you're partying, partying, partying. So you have to change where your your physical location, the physicality of being into alcohol or drugs. That's one part. The, the bigger part is your mind. You know. And so I had to change my whole situation. And it was like meeting Bluefield. It happened by accident. A friend of mine played in church. He says, Joe, we need a bass player for this week. Could you come and play in church for him? And I went and I was doodling on guitar at the rehearsal. Said, oh, no, no, no. You got to play guitar. <laughs> you, you and Boone play guitar. And we got another good bass player, a guy named Gary. I says, well, you got to play Gary Walker? He says, we got Gary Walker. My cousin was already on the bass. Different cousin. So I went and I, I always say I went to, for one day and stayed for 10 years. But I believe it saved my life. So, and what did that music mean to you? Well, I just always say this. Gospel and, blues and, gospel and blues are cousins. Soul music is the child of gospel music. Rock and roll is the child of, of blues. With blues, it's as simple as this. You're singing about your baby. With gospel, you're singing about God. Nine times out of ten, the music's very, very much the same. With, with blues, you listen to Jimmy Reed, Guide Me Run, uh-uh, uh-uh. Speed it up. <clears throat> you got Chuck Berry. Right. So it's, it's, it's and, and with, with, with gospel music, you know, it's, uh, oh, Lord, save me, save me, soothe me, soothe, the same thing. That's just what Sam Cooke did. He was a genius. He just took gospel music and put pop lyrics on it. You know, Chuck Berry took blues music and put those three-minute masterpieces you know, that he could write. Only he could write. Only he could have done that. Now, did it affect your career in any way? Like, because you were a blues artist, and then to take the shift, and maybe it wasn't even fair to call you a blues artist then, but to all suddenly concentrate on gospel, was that a risk to your career in any way? or did I didn't care. It didn't matter. No, because when the way we played in church was just the way we played the blues at a club. <laughs> I mean, the church would be rocking. I mean, flat out. I remember once the Reverend came to the Joe, can you and Danny Boone just turn them guitars down to here? He said the sisters is getting worked up. The skirts is getting too high. They're getting worked up. <laughs> yeah, man, you know, whatever you want to do. How much does religion come into this? Well, I, I tell everybody, you know, I, I went to Catholic school for six years. I would have to go to Catholic church in the morning. Bapt on Sunday, Baptist church in the evening. So I have had my fill of religion, um, organized religion, because I must have heard 10,000 sermons, and I heard two where the pastor said, is there anybody in the flock that we can give some money to? Because usually the pastor's always saying, the flock getting money to me. You know, so I, I got to be honest, um, I believe there's a higher power somewhere. I don't think we run anything, but as far as, you know, um, having to go to church every Sunday and this and that and the other, I did it. But I never have been a real religious person, you know, because for some reason I had to go in all these different religious cultures and I just, 
you know, if, if there is if there is a God or a um, you know Son of God and all that, half the people that say they they they're speaking for him, they're in a hell of a lot of trouble. <laughs> you know. <laughs> You're well respected as a guitar player. Does did going to gospel for that 10 year period, did that make you a better guitar player? What it does is it really makes you play as a team. Um, I think my rhythm guitar player, guitar playing, really got tight playing in church. I can just, I can just play rhythm. Every drummer I've ever played would say, set Joe's amp right here so I can hear it. You know, because I can, I can set time. And I don't move rhythmically, it stays like Steve Cropper, like Keith Richards, it just, like Bobby Womack, like Jimmy Johnson, one from us. My rhythm is Freddie Stewart from Sly Stone. And that's what gospel taught me, is that, you know, cause, because there's no 20 guitar passes in gospel music. You know, it's all about the voice, which is the real natural instrument, and everything else is the support of that. You know, it's support of that, and if you, we used to solo, don't get me wrong, but it wouldn't be no three and four passes. When, and when you listen to the original blues records, there weren't no three and four passes. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Earl Hooker never took six passes of a solo. Even Freddie King didn't. You know, I mean, now it's, it's, it's I call it diarrhea of the guitar sometimes. Okay, so let's talk about this, because I think that's one of the things that's not problematic, but blues has kind of gone towards more soloing than the actual song. And, and whether you call it diarrhea or whatever, in some ways, would you you would be partly guilty of that as well, maybe? Well, yeah. Because yeah. why? But, you know, here's the weird thing, is that when, say, when the Fillmore was happening, the Avalon Ballroom, guys would trip out, okay, trip out and play guitar, you know, 10 minutes solo. I used to see the Yardbirds, they used to play the Fillmore Auditorium. And they had what they call a rave up. Jeff, you know, they speed it up, turn the fuck. But even then, they didn't take 15 and 20 passes. But I think the audiences now are so geared to that. If you don't stretch out on the guitar, you're not shredding, dude. You're not shredding. I mean, and so I can do that, you I know, know you can. but I try to do it in context of a song. If I'm gonna do it, it'll be a song like Hellfire or something, where you know, you know, you, you know, Jimmy Hendrix, can you play it? No, I don't play it. And then I play it, you know, but I'll only do it once, only once, because nobody can do it like he did it. Mm -hmm. But I grew up in that generation. I was there when Fuzz Tones first hit there, you know. I've I seen the first one Jeff Beck had like this little thing, you know, when they when they do their stuff, you know, and, and our whole thing was we got to get a Fuzz Tone like Jeff Beck had, Keith Richards. You know, not knowing that they wanted to fuss on because Ike's guitar f amp fell out of a f the damn car. <laughs> you know, but it's like they say, what? Uh, uh, the mother of invention is necessity. Everybody sort of does something because it's necessary. And I think to reach younger ears now, they, that's what they hear. And you know, it's funny, I just did a gig with Supersonic Blues Machine and, and I was with Robin Ford. You know, and there's young people out in the audience and Robin doesn't play like that either. You know, Robin, yeah. you know, it's, it's... Tasteful. Yeah, it's tasteful. And some other kid came on after that, and he was shredding, and all these kids just went crazy. And Robin, Robin played one of the best solos in the world, and it went just over their heads, you know? And so when Robin make, makes a record now, you know, I know, because he's on the same label, I'm on Mascot, 
I know every and, and it's sort of the the 500-pound gorilla in the rooms. Everybody's looking at Joe's success, and you know Joe plays that style, and 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 now all the younger guys are sort of playing that style, mm -hmm. you know. But I think that there's room for all of it, right. you know. And then there, there's some younger guys that don't play that style. You know, you got Selwyn Birchwood, he doesn't shred. Jerika Singleton doesn't shred. You know, it just, it's not, but you know this yourself. When they're successful with one thing, they want 50,000 other of them. You know? When you went back to the blues, was that a difficult thing? Like what made you decide that you would stop doing the gospel and, and work towards the blues? Well, I played the Jazz and Heritage Festival. We played the, 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 uh, the gospel tent. We rocked the tent, and I'd been writing songs for the gospel group. And I wrote one song called Ride Now. And it was just a jump up, you know. I'm riding high this morning because I'm on my way home. And uh, one of the couple of older guys in the group said, well, you know, Joe, that's, that's too rock and roll. And so whenever it gets to a point with me where music is censored in any form, I'm gone. You know, and, and that's not to say the guys were bad, that, you know, because you listen to what they call gospel now. There's rap gospel, oh, yeah, love my Lord, and, you know, and all kind of stuff. I mean, what I was doing was tame. But, um, and I still have my gospel group on my records, you know, many gospel groups. So, but it was just time for me to, plus I'm a restless soul musically. I'm always searching, always. Do you, did you ever question music? Nope. No. no, no matter where you were, it was always. Well, when I, when I went back to school and, and I got a degree in music, I, I get in these long esoteric arguments with the professor, with different professors. And, you know, because um, they were, well, you can't do this in music, you can't do that. And I said, you can do anything you want to do in music now. You know, the Beatles proved that. You can do a backward solo if you want to, you know. And they said, oh, well, you're not supposed to do that. You're not, the, the rules the rules made to be broken, you know, with music. Everything creative is done, is really come by accident a lot of times, you know. And it's come by people saying, you can't do it. And some guys saying, Oh yeah, I can. You know. Oh yeah, you can. Yeah. John, we, we can't get we can't get the guitar to go backwards. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. <laughs> We're gonna stay here until you make it go backwards. We ain't gonna <laughs> What's the greatest lesson you've learned from music? I think um from BB was um you know, Joe, he told me a long time ago, about 25, 30 years, he said, you know. I know you're a little depressed because I, I, it was about 85. And he, he says, Robert's hitting real big and Stevie's hitting real big. And, you know, and he says, you're a producer, you're a songwriter. You know, you play slide guitar, you play with a hooker, you play with guys I didn't even play with, Joe. You know, and it's, it's almost like, you know, him and John Lee Hooker used to come and try to butter me up. And they always would tell me, you know, you may not get as big as a lot of guys financially, but you're going to have a long career. And they were right. That was 30 years ago. I mean, did you have that chip on your shoulder? Did you have that? Well, well you know, it wasn't so much a chip. It was just, a, you know, I was out there slogging and, and everything. And, and, you know, you, you sort of start thinking, well, what do I have to do to get to the next level? Right. You know, I'm a critic's darling. You know, why ain't, I, why ain't I selling, you know, records like that? And there's other things that, that are not in your control. Mm -hmm. If the record company's not pushing you, you know, the record company pushed Smoking Gun. I was on the same label. They didn't push Blue Soul like they pushed Smoking Gun, you know? 
And and somebody said, I forgot who it was, some English guy, because I was real known in England, like Robert, Terrence Trent Darby, somebody, because I did some gigs, and he said, you know, if I'd have made Blue Soul, that record like Joe Louis Walker made, it'd have sold 20 million copies. But you can't, if nobody hears it, nobody can buy it. And so that, that was what, what sort of, it's like Buddy Guy used to tell me. He said, Joe, they put, just put my career on the shelf for seven years. Buddy just didn't start playing. He's the one started all. Yeah. T-Bone started it, Guitar Slim, playing behind your back and your legs. And all. Buddy perfected it, and Jimmy came along and put it all together and took it where theatrics sometimes is more important than the music, mm -hmm. England. The one thing the English guys know is about the show. Right. And a lot of times it's all about the show. You know, and they took the same music, like Eric Burns said, that the Americans threw in the trash bin. They didn't play it any better. They just played it with a different energy. And the kids here, mostly white kids, and some African Americans who didn't know a lot about blues, went crazy for it. You know, they went crazy. You know, but that's always been like that in America. I mean, who wanted to hear um, Big Mama's version of a hound dog? Most people wanted to hear Elvis Presley's version. Hound dog was a hit in my house, Big Mama Thornton. Got the funkiest guitar in the world. I mean, my dad had That's All Right Mama by Arthur Big Boy Credo. You know, my dad had Mystery Train by Lil, Park, Lil Junior Park and the Blue Flames. That's the one I learned. Right. And then when I lived in Bloomfield, I learned their version of it, the Butterfield version. You know, and then when I started playing with Scotty Moore, I learned their version of it. Tell me about that album, because you got some pretty heavy duty guitar players to play along with you. What's, what's called Great Guitars? Is that one? Yeah, yeah. Is well, that a difficult project to put together? Well, you know, my, my, my stepson came to me one day and he says, Dad, you're playing all these guitar players and musicians. Can't they all just be on one record? I said, you gave me an idea. So I asked everybody that I liked, and everybody agreed to do it. And the three, per the, the three people that wanted to be on it couldn't be on it. And that was Johnny Winters was the first one I asked, because Johnny's my buddy. And Johnny agreed to do it, but when I left and came back, he was not feeling well. And uh, Johnny Guitar Watson was going to do it, but he died in, in Japan. And Johnny Hooker called me to do it, but at the time his management was, had other plans for him. You know, so I said, if your name was John, you weren't meant to be on that record, you know. But um, I was really honored, especially Robert Jr., because when we did the thing and Robert Jr. got through with the session, he said, Joe. I said, what? I want you to make a record with me. And that was fun. Wow. So I made a record, and we were nominated for the Grammy. But B.B. being the old Fox, B.B. played on, on the record, too. But B.B.'s record was also up for the Grammy. So either way, B.B. would have won. Right. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, the, the old bull, you know. But in your time, I mean, and you've been doing this for a long time, you're always working with new ideas. Do you ever dry out of ideas, or is that ever an issue? Like, what am I going to do next, or how do I not repeat myself? Well, see, I'm a big, big, coming out of the, the era that I came out of, of getting of working with people. My whole thing, I like to work with people. I work with Ronnie Wood, I play with Ronnie. I play with Ronnie Baker Brooks. You know, I'll play with Cade Mouth. I'll play with, with that kid there just walked by, Marcus King. Mm -hmm. You know, playing, getting ideas, doing something. I don't want, I don't need to have just me. Some guys have to have just them. I really don't care for that. 
I, you know, to me, the biggest thrill of my life was to be able to have the, 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 the clout to be able to hire my heroes like Scotty Moore. Same thing with Scotty. I did the thing with Scotty. Joe, come make a record with me. We did all the King's Men. Then we did, then I played with Scotty and the Jordan. That's how I met the Jordanaires. Then the Jordanaires sang on my record. And then, you know, it, it, it's on and on and on. And Scotty was happy that someone like me, you know, was interested in him and knew everything about him, you know? And, and the funny Scotty story I can tell you is I played in Memphis one time, and Scotty came from Nashville, the Gibson guitar place, when they had the, the club about 15, 16 years ago. And, uh, and I always say, Scotty, Crop produced three records on me. You produced some shit on me. Did you guys ever hang out in Memphis? No, Joe, I was gone because Scotty moved. And I'm, this is not a true story. I'm in Nashville, in the club. And I say, do you ever see Steve because he lives in Nashville? No, Joe, I don't never see him. I walk four feet. Crop, you ever see Scotty? No. I, I said, come here. I said, Scotty Cropper. And he oh, man. <laughs> and to me, that is Memphis music. That is part of it. You know, then you have all the black guys who were all mixed up. A lot of people don't know that Scotty Moore produced Frank Frost and all those blues guys. Mm -hmm. And he produced Ringo Starr's first hit record, you know, Buku of Blues. Scotty produced all that, you know, so, and Scotty produced all that Elvish stuff. I mean, Sam wasn't a producer. Scotty produced all that stuff, you know, went to Nashville and really got one of the first, first studios together. So Scotty to me is, um, it was one of the biggest honors of my life was like being so much with Scotty and DJ, you know, and, and the whole Elvis family. Cause when we inducted him into the Memphis Hall of Fame, the whole, the Jordanaires, Mr. Klein, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, bass player who played with Elvis some, everybody was there. And for Scotty to call me, and I was living in Paris, and say, you got to come home, I want you to be part of this, was amazing. And then to know that Ike was there too. And Ike had been with me for a couple of years. I went and, you know, I had him with me for a while. It was great, you know, it really was. So the question is, who haven't you worked with that you wanted to work with? Does such a person exist? Well, I think, um, and Robin knows this, I, 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 I'm sort of partial to Keith, you know, as a person. Right. And, and as a musician, you know. But you've worked with him. Well, we, we, we've talked, and, oh, okay. and, and we, we hung out a little bit. But it's just something about him, and Robin will tell you this. Um, this the room lights up when he walks in for a musician mm -hmm. because he's just about music. There, you just got the feeling, you know, there's just no agenda, zero, just straight music. It ain't about him being a star. It ain't, it's about the blues. It's about country. It's about, you know, American music. And it's the same with Cropper. It was the same with Scotty. It was the same with Robert Jr. It was all about music. You know, and, and I gravitate towards those type of guys, you know. So uh, maybe one of these days we'll do something. I, I think on the next record I'm going to do one of his songs. Um, when when the people were talking about don't be upset about not getting recognition, and I don't know how upset you were or how frustrated you were, but did you, you know, now looking back on it, you, you obviously got uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame. Every time I go to the Blues Music Awards, you seem to be getting more and more nominations. It just seems endless. I mean, how do you look back on your career? 
Well, I look at somebody being fortunate, you know, because I'm, I'm sort of like a couple of friends of mine. I'm not the best singer. I sure ain't the best guitar player. I ain't the best songwriter. I'm not the best showman. But once you put them all together, it's formidable, you know, and I'm proud to say that, you know, I could, uh, like Bloomfield, you know, I've played with piano players. I play with everybody from Mose Allenson to Lafayette Leak to Johnny Johnson to Herbie Hancock, George Duke, you name it, because I'm part of the Monk Institute. I'm proud of that. Mm -hmm. And hey, harmonica players, I play with everybody from Butterfield to James Cotton to Snooky Pryor to Kim Wilson to you name it. You know, bass players, I play with everybody from Fuzz. Drummers, I play with everybody from Kenny Jones of the, of, of, of the Who and Faces to Caliudo to Terry Lynn Washington to, you know, and that's what I'm, I'm a fan. You know, I'm, and to have these people backing me up, you know, it's like, shit, I'm pinching myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, really, you know, to, to walk into Stone's concert and Ronnie said, Joe, Keith wants to see you. And Ronnie said, Joe, I just talked to Mick. Mick said, oh, I know that guy. You know, he comes to play Mystique every year. I know Joe. You know, I mean, it, that is something that you could only dream about. Mm -hmm. You know, because to me, all those guys, our generation, that generation, wasn't just about the music. It was about civil rights, human rights, uh, um, uh, um, women's rights, uh, um, La Raza, uh, black pride, um, uh, people being able to grow their hair long. I mean, that didn't start in, that wouldn't happen in the 50s. You know, now they just take it for granted. You, you, you take an interracial couple sometime for granted. When I grew up, it was dangerous. You know, you, voting, when I went to Mississippi 12 years old, black people couldn't vote. And young kids take that for granted? You know, I mean, I was around a grown person the other day, a woman I was on the plane with. And she said, no, I didn't vote this year, it wasn't a choice. And I just turned and I said, you know that it was women that got beat to death for you to get the, the right to vote? You know, and, and I forgot who was it said, democracy is not a, a spectator sport. You know, you really have to be, you don't have to be Martin Luther King or, or, or Pete Seeger, although I, I, those are my heroes, but you do have to be involved. You got to leave this place better than when you got here, you know. There's also another quote in your bio, I think, that said that you probably learned more from your mistakes than anything else. Can you talk about that? Like, what, what great lessons have you learned from your mistakes? Well, I think it's, it's like, you, you asked earlier about when Bloomfield died, you know? That was a mistake. Mike, two things, Michael should have never been by himself because he can't hardly drive. And, and the other thing was that he should have never been messing with that particular drug because that was not his drug of choice, you know? and. I did the same thing, you know, but the smartest thing I did was to go into rehab, you know? And it doesn't make how many times you go in, like Muhammad Ali said, it doesn't make a difference how many times you get knocked down. The big thing is if you get back up. I, I sort of learned from those mistakes. And I think if someone like a Michael or a Jimmy could have got off the treadmill and had somebody talk to him about recovery or this and that and the other, they would have lived, you know? They could have learned from that mistake. I, I feel that's a life mistake. You know, music, the, first, the music mistake 
I learned from them. I'll never forget. I, I went to Canada, and I didn't have any money, you know. And but um, my friend Bobby Drew had worked out a thing for me to, to do a commercial on a TV station, right? And so we get on the tram, and an old man got on. It's a true story, old gentleman, and he spoke to me, and I didn't know anybody, so I just, you know, I didn't say anything. So I, I get off the train, me and my friend Bobby, and we get in there, and he says, yeah, we got a little something you could play. I think I made about 100 bucks, and that was big money. And he says, we, we got to wait for the, the gentleman that hired you, you know, that, that your friend talked, you know. And it was the same guy that got off the tram. You know what he said to me? I felt this big. He says, son, somebody speak to you, speak back, because you never know who you're talking to. And I'll never forget that. I'll speak to anybody to this day. You know, but I'm a sort of a California guy. My wife laughs at me, you know, I'm like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> you know, we come out of that generation. You know, I had to put my armor on when I moved to New York. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's always a pleasure seeing you. Well, thank and I have you. such respect for you. And, uh, and I really appreciate you taking your busy schedule and taking some time for me. So. Well, we all got, always got time for you. I appreciate always. it. Thank you very much. Thank you.